Mark chapter 7, as we continue in our study of the book of Mark. Let's read the first 13 verses together. It says in Mark 7, verse 1, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around Jesus when he had come from Jerusalem, or when they had come from Jerusalem, rather, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed, For Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men." Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is korban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Lord, this morning we ask that through the teaching of your word, you would keep us from doing many things such as that. You would keep us from unnecessary tradition, from our own ideas, our own thoughts, that you would keep us from religion that would hinder your word working in the hearts of men and women. Teach us today about true religion. Teach us how to truly know you. Protect us from uh, uh, legalism. Protect us from falsehood. Protect us from going through the motions. Protect us from putting on a church happy face and just coming in and doing time. And move us into a place of really doing business with you. Lord, we know that this morning you are overwhelmingly in love with every heart here. You are amazingly in love with every person. And Lord, you want our hearts. You want every fiber of our beings. You want us to know you in a profound way. So protect us now from churchianity. And move us into a real depth of Jesus Christianity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message this morning is The Heart of Religion, The Heart of the Matter, and how Jesus gets right down to it with these scribes and Pharisees. These scribes and Pharisees had come from Jerusalem, no doubt, to check Jesus out, to see what he and his disciples were up to, to listen to the things he had to say. And we know from our prior studies in the book of Mark that the scribes and the Pharisees were basically the Jewish leaders of the day. They had a tremendous amount of authority in the lives of the people in Israel at that time. And they had come from Jerusalem, which was, of course, the religious center. And the leaders, when they came, were observing the disciples. No doubt, as soon as they saw that these men were the disciples of Jesus, they put them under a magnifying glass, 
under a microscope, so to speak, just as people do with you and I when they find out that we claim to be the disciples of Jesus. Immediately, our lives are on display. You know that. And so when these very religious, religious leaders begin to observe the life of the disciples, they took issue with a few things. Number one, they came to Jesus and they complained, saying, listen, your guys, when they eat their food, they haven't even washed their hands first. And the traditions of our elders demands that they wash their hands, that they make themselves ceremonially clean prior to the eating of food. Now this arose because the Jews in the day believed in two sets of laws from God. They believed in the written law, it's called the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, The whole Old Testament by Jews is called the Law and the Prophets. But the first five books is the Torah or the Law. They believed in the written law, but they also believed in, and Orthodox Jews still do, in the oral law. That is, they believe that when Moses received the law from God, God not only gave him the stuff to write down, but he orally transmitted to him the interpretation and the application of the written law. And the Jews then who were religious, and the Jews now who are religious, esteem that oral law on the same level as the written law. And it's been handed down century after century from teacher to teacher. And for the Jew, the oral law is as binding as Scripture. And it was gathered together and codified in the 3rd century into something which is called the Mishnah, which makes up the whole of the Talmud, which are a collection of Jewish writings, which they would hold up again, along with Scripture. And throughout history, and certainly we see in the Gospels, that the complaint that Jesus had against the oral law, the traditions of the elders, was that it served to complicate things. It served to complicate a relationship with God. You see, God had told the priests of Israel in Exodus 30, 19, and in Exodus 40, 12, that the priests, prior to committing their um, services within the temple, were to cleanse themselves in the labor that was there in the temple grounds. The priests were to wash prior to the ministry in the temple and prior to the sacrifices. But the claim of the oral law was that not only were the priests to wash, which it says in Exodus, which is written down, But they now said that all of Israel was to wash before they ate. You see, they took what was written and they expounded upon it. They sought to interpret and to apply it to a whole. Now what Jesus is going to maintain in our text, and we would agree, is that it is sola scriptura. It is scripture alone and not the oral law. That's what Jesus is going to say today. And yet they sought to put this burden upon the people. Not only did they have to wash their hands, but we read there in our text too, that they were required to wash all of their pots and their bowls and their utensils. Now that was required for the utensils that were to be used in the temple services. But again, the religious leaders were putting it upon the people and it became a burden. And so the rulers, seeing that Jesus' disciples were no longer acting like the rest of the Jews, had a complaint. And they came to Jesus with this complaint. And then Jesus had a complaint for them. And their complaint, as we'll see working through the text, is that they replaced the simplicity of relationship with the complication of religion. They replaced the simplicity of relationship with the complication of religion. And not only that, but they esteemed their oral traditions over Scripture. 
says in verse 8 that they neglected the commandment of God and they held to their tradition of men. Now it's very important that we see verse 6. That Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We're going to deal with that in a moment. Very important. Jesus is complaining against the religious leaders that they were honoring him with lip service, but not with their hearts. And then he says in verse 7, But in vain they do worship me, because they teach as doctrines the precepts of men. Verse 9, again, you nicely set aside the commandment of God. Now, Jesus is going to give us an illustration of how they do this. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Moses said, or it's written in the Old Testament, here is a clear teaching of Scripture. Honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It's written down in Scripture. Honor your mother and father. It's the fifth commandment. It's repeated again in Deuteronomy 5.16. It was the first commandment with a promise. Honor your mother and father that you may live a long and prosperous life in the land which God has given you. That's clearly written. And again, it's clearly written. He who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. That's Exodus 21.17. And repeated in Leviticus 20.19. Jesus says, here is the clear teaching of Scripture, how children are to relate to their parents. They are to honor them. He says, but what you have done, verse 11, but what you say is if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is korban or given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. You see, the oral tradition had this idea. That you could take all your goods and you could declare at any time, you could make a vow and say, all of my goods are going to be set aside for religious purposes only. They're not going to be used for mundane things. I can't give them to anyone else because they're only to be used for the temple services. For money for the temple, to provide for the priesthood, they're only to be used for religious services. Now on the surface, that sounds great, right? More of us should have such a heart. Everything that I have, God, I'm committing it to your work. On the surface, it sounds wonderful. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But what the people were beginning to do is use this as a way of escaping responsibility of relationship. Listen to me now. They were using the traditions of men as a way to escape the responsibility of relationship. They would say to their mom and dad when they were in their old age, Sorry mom, sorry dad. I can't care for you anymore. I know that retirement didn't work out as you planned. I know times are tough, but I can't care for you. I can't give you any of my provisions. I can't even have you in my house because everything I had is for God. Sorry. Jesus said that they missed the whole point of it. And they put the oral law of Korban above the clear teaching of Scripture that they are to honor their mother and father. Building on this principle, the New Testament says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The New Testament says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Certainly, this is a concept that Jesus had in mind. When he looked at these people who claimed to be so holy, so devout, and they wouldn't even provide for their family. The New Testament says that not providing for your family, when you're able, 
is denying the faith and being worse than an unbeliever. You see, they were escaping the claims and the demands of relationship by hiding behind a false pretense of religion. And they were holding their own ideas above the clear teaching of Scripture. It says in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God that you visit widows and orphans in their distress, and that you keep yourself unstained from the world. The Bible says in James 21, this is the real thing, that you meet the needs of people around you. You visit widows and orphans in your distress. In that context, widows and orphans were at the whim of the people. They were the most needy because family was supposed to care for family. Here's real religion, that you meet the needs of the people around you, that you care for others, and you keep yourself unstained from the world. While caring for those in the world, you keep yourself unstained by the defilement which is in the world. Verse 13, Jesus says, They were thus invalidating the word of God by their tradition which they had handed down, and they were doing many such things. And so Jesus here clearly upholds the word of God above the tradition of men, above the tradition of the Jews, and above the tradition of you and I. Oh yeah, you see, just like the Jews, we too often become laden in tradition, don't we? That's often what denominations are all about. Well, this is the way that we do things. We have our own traditions here, reality. We can't condemn anybody. This is the way we do it, and at this time we do this, and we normally do it like that, and we don't do this. Everybody has their own set of traditions. Calvary Chapel, which is what reality has come out of, has had its own traditions for years. All the denominations do. Now, within Christianity, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with traditions. It's not as though just because it's a tradition, it's bad. Here's what men and women have done throughout history. Wanting to honor God. Wanting to bless God. Wanting to build in accountability to fellowship. They've come up with these guidelines and these traditions. There's nothing wrong with that. I believe that at the beginning of almost all the traditions, there was a pure heart and there was a right motive to want to honor God and to serve Him and to just set up some guidelines for those who were like-minded. There's nothing wrong with that, except for this. The inventions of men will never measure up to the Word of God. The inventions of men will never measure up to the Word of God. It's okay to do things a certain way. We do things a certain way. That's why we all go to this church is because we can identify with how one another does things. We have our own traditions. There's nothing wrong with those until they begin to hinder the Word of God. The moment they get in the way of the Word of God, they are a problem and the tradition must go. The tradition has got to go and the Word of God must always take precedence because the Word of God alone is authoritative. For both doctrine and practice, what is taught in the church and what is done in the church, the number one, the final word of that comes from the Word of God. The Word of God is authoritative for both doctrine and practice. And the moment we move beyond the Word of God, we lose our plumb line. We no longer have a point of reference. And there's been a lot of people that have done this throughout history. They've experienced something and they've said, golly, We don't see this in the Word of God, but we sure do like it. And we can't really justify it in the Word, but we're digging it, so we're going to continue on in it. Now, the moment we get that mindset, we're in trouble. Because now the sky's the limit. 
It's anything goes. Because if you're able to come along and say, well, I know that God does, I know it's not in the Bible like that, but, but we want to do it like this and we believe it's God. The moment you begin to do that, what's to stop the next guy who comes along with something more extreme and says, hey, I know it's not in the Bible, but I think it's God. And now you can no longer say to him, no way, man, that's not God. You've got no plumb line anymore. You've got no foundation. You've got no measuring rod. You've got nothing to hold it up to and check and see. And so now anybody can make any claim and say, well, this is of God and this is what God is doing and this is the way God wants me to do it. And if we don't hold to Scripture as the final authority for doctrine and practice, then anybody can do whatever they want to do and nobody has a right to say anything. We don't want to be that. That's not us. We want to hold to the Word of God. I believe this. I believe that I will never stand before God as a Christian and as a pastor and have him say, Britt, you clung too tightly to my word. You were too reliant upon the word. You just held on too tight. You just were, you, 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 you went too much by its guidelines. I don't think God will ever say that. But I do think that there are sincere, Christ-loving Christians that God might be able to say to them if he would ever say something like this. He might be able to say to them, you know what? You kind of let the word go there. You went beyond the word. You had your own traditions, your own ideas, and you held them above my word. I'd rather err on the side if we need to err, and I don't believe we need to err. I believe we can have biblical Christianity. Are we erring? Yeah, this church is erring because we're not perfect. There's a lot of ways we need to grow. But I don't believe we have to err. I believe we can experience biblical Christianity, but not apart from Scripture being the final authority. In Acts chapter 7, Paul went to preach to some people in Berea. And it says concerning the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, that any time Paul taught them, they opened up the Word of God to see whether or not the things that he was saying was true. They waited out against the Word of God. Okay, this apostle, Paul, we hear what he's saying, but now you guys, let's open up the Word and let's see if it's true. And because they checked it against the word, the Bible says two things about them. Number one, many of them believed. But number two, the Holy Spirit says concerning the Bereans, they were more noble of mind because they checked everything against Scripture. That ought to be a foundation for your lifetime. Whatever church you may be involved in, whatever teacher you may be listening to, whatever fellowship, whatever Bible study, whatever doctrine, whatever practice, you ought to be able to hold it up against the word of God to see whether or not it stands. The Bible calls the people that do that more noble of mind. So the Word is the authority. And here's another reason why we need to put the Word of God above the traditions of men. is because the Word of God deals with the heart. And God is interested with our hearts. He's not interested with the outward display. He's interested with the position of our heart before Him. I want you to see, keep your finger here and turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 4. Very important scripture in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. You can't say that about the traditions of men. For the word of God is living and it is active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Verse 13. 
And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, the Word of God is alive and it's active. And it's incredibly sharp. It's like a scalpel. And it's able to go to the deepest place of our very being. And it's able to judge or discern or to make right or to correct the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is why it is so important that we preach the Word of God, cling to the Word of God, study the Word of God, preach it. Because it deals with the heart. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 9 that with the heart man believes. And with the mouth, he confesses. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. You see, the Word of God reaches the heart of men. It's been said this, you don't read your Bible, it reads you. You don't read your Bible, it reads you. Isn't that true? You open it up and sometimes, man, it's reading you like a book and it knows exactly where you're at. What we need in our church is the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word, amen? But here's the problem is that the word deals with the heart, but man always somehow seems to settle for two things, external displays and emotional experience. External displays and emotional experience. Now, there is nothing wrong with the external display of Christianity. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture to have a lot of it, right? We're to be proactive in our faith. We're to be outward in our faith. There's nothing wrong with external display and there's nothing wrong with emotional experience. God is very, very much an emotional God. God is angry sometimes. God dances and rejoices over us. God has all these emotions. We have emotions because we're created in the image of God. So there's nothing wrong with outward displays and emotional experience unless they usurp the place of the Word of God unless they go beyond the Word of God, unless we cling to them over and above the Word of God. Well, I had this experience. Well, let's see what the Word of God says about it. Don't judge the Word of God by your experience. Judge your experience by the Word of God. Amen? That's just wisdom. And the external display. Well, I want to do it this way. That's wonderful. What's the Word of God say about it? And some people say, wait a minute, Britt. There's freedom in Christ. Hey, listen. Don't worry, about what's, what, what, don't worry about trying to do what is outside the Word. Just try to get together what's in the Word first. If you can get together with everything in the Word, you will be extremely free. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean to go beyond Christ's Word. It means to be able to walk in His Word. It means to be free from the flesh, free from sin, free from guilt, free from condemnation. Not free to do what we want. Free to do what the Word commands. That's freedom in Christ. God wants to deal with the heart and with truth. And so it's always the Word of God. Turn back now to Mark. Mark chapter 6 again. Mm. 7. Thank you. Man, I need you guys. I don't know where I am. Mark chapter 7. Now I want to deal with this phrase in verse 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. What Israel always fell back into, and what the religious leaders had fallen into in the first century, and what you and I so easily fall prey to, 
is something that I like to call time card religion. Time card religion. We like to check in and do our time and then check out. You know what I'm saying? For so many, if we were to be honest, that's what church is. Church is doing time. It ought to be doing business with God. It ought to be a real engagement. But it's doing time. You see, the owner of a business and the employee of a business approach it it very differently, don't they? The owner pours his heart and soul into it. He's never off the clock. He's never done with it. He is absorbed in it. But the employee, he doesn't care. He comes in, puts his time card in. Hey man, I'm going to do the minimum and I'm going to get paid and then I'm out of here. You see, we're not to be employees within Christianity. We are to own this relationship. We are to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, stewards of His grace, ministers of the new covenant in the gospel. We're not mere employees. We're supposed to have a sense of ownership. We are called the sons of light. And he is the light. And so he's condemning him, them here for time card religion versus giving your all to God. Now understand, there's no merit in time card religion. God is not impressed with church attendance. We don't take attendance to hear. When I stand before God, the Bible does say concerning the pastor in the book of Hebrews, that he will stand before God and give an account for those that he was called to minister to. I'm terrified by that daily. But it doesn't say that I will stand before God and I will give him the roll cards or the attendance sheets. Okay, Britt, hey, good job, man, for the last several years. Now let's see who was there. How often was so-and-so there? God is not impressed. It's not as though the morning when you walk into church, God goes, Michael, Gabriel, check it out, man. Johnny came to church. Oh, everything's better in heaven now. Johnny went to church. God is not impressed in that, with that. In fact, listen to me very carefully now. God is extremely disappointed in that if it is just time card religion. We're going to see that in a minute in the book of Jeremiah. God is disappointed with that if we are merely doing time. What we're supposed to be doing is giving our all to God. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, listen to that language, Paul is saying, I am begging you Christians by the mercies of God to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. Not just our physical bodies, but the every fiber of our being is what Paul is talking about. Paul says, I beg you to give all of yourself to God to hold nothing back from Him. Now, the reason why we so often fall in tradition is because tradition doesn't require that from us. You see, in tradition, we can play the roles. In tradition, we can say the right things and we can do the right things and we can look pretty good. You see, the inventions of man will never measure up to the Word of God. But the Word of God judges between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we need to be aware of the way that we begin doing things just because that's how we do it. We need to be aware of our own traditions and need to say, are these pushing us into a greater depth of relationship with God or are these allowing me to be surfacy? Are these allowing me to just do church? Am I just settling for churchianity instead of Jesus Christianity? And from time to time, I have to ask myself that, qu- that question because it's easy because of the size of my mouth to offer up lip service to God and not life service. 
lip service and not life service. I feel impressed upon my heart to just say this, and I've said it before from this pulpit. I hope that you guys never measure your Christianity by what you see of me on a Sunday morning. You need to understand that on a Sunday morning, I'm at my very best. And some of you are going, oh man, that's, what, that's all you got? <laughs> you see, on a Sunday morning, I've already been up for several hours. I've been studying the Bible now for several days for the sermon. I've been praying for hour upon hour. I've been seeking the Lord. And so when I come here, I'm studied up and I prayed up. And it's not that I know more about you than the Bible. It's just that I prepared. It's like the person that goes and they take a math test. The guy that studies does very well. The guy that doesn't, well, he doesn't. And so I hope that you don't come and I hope you don't look at me on Sunday mornings and say, I'll never measure up. We can't be like the pastor. Listen to how much he knows. Listen to his prayers. Listen to how holy he is. Listen, you want to measure yourself to me? Come walk a mile in my shoes. Or better yet, come walk a mile in my wife's shoes. (laughs) Then you're going to see the real me. Come and hang out with me for a week. I'll tell you what that'll do. That'll get your focus off of the pastor and onto Jesus Christ, which is where it ought to be. God uses the foolish things of the world, so he called me as a pastor because I was the biggest fool he could find in Carpinteria. Someone in the back raised their hand trying to usurp my place as the biggest fool. Don't even try. But it's easy for me to show up on a Sunday morning and be studied up and prayed up and be at my best and offer lip service to God. And I figure that if it's easy for me, it's easy for you too. And so we just need to protect one another from that, right? We just need to encourage each other. Hey, let's press into God today. That's why we have a prayer meeting Sunday mornings at 8.30 and I wish everybody would attend that. At 8.30, we prepare our hearts and we prepare the hearts of others who are going to come through prayer. That we might engage in the real thing. That it might be the real deal. That we wouldn't be playing games with God. Because you know what? I don't have time for games. I got two kids and a wife. If I'm going to play games, I want to play with them, not with you. (laughs) If I'm going to be with you, I want to do some real Christianity. I don't want the traditions of men. I want the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We have our own traditions. We just talked about church going being one of them. A funny one is praying before we eat. Nothing wrong with praying before you eat. Nothing wrong with that at all. Except for I see that Christians become super religious about it. You know what I mean? Just the other day, we were doing a construction job. Me and Dave Granada and uh, Glenn Ornay was there and some others. And we were eating these burritos. And all of us just wanted to eat the burritos. But we all kind of had this sense of condemnation that we need to pray first. And Dave Granada was like this. And you know how it is when you're getting ready to pray? There's always someone who's slow to get there. At our house, it's my mom. God bless her. But she's always preparing the food still, and she's got such a big heart. Sweetheart, you want milk? Okay, you want juice? Okay, you want salt? Do you want kosher flake salt or normal salt? Okay, you want this? And then my dad and I are just going, Mom, come pray, please. We just want to eat. You see, at that point, it's kind of gotten religious, hasn't it? It's gotten a little funny. You know what Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy says? Chapter 8, verse 10, it says this. Deuteronomy 8, 10. After you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. When you read the Bible, it says pray after you eat. I have a hard time finding where we get the pray before you eat thing other than it feeding the 5,000. Jesus blessed and multiplied. That's cool. Pray before, pray after, Whatever. But don't let it become a weird tradition. Isn't that what prayer comes? Thank you for this food. Jesus' name, amen. Nobody means it anymore. 
I love it when we mean it. I am so guilty of sometimes sitting down just going, good bread, good meat, good Lord, let's eat. I would rather eat the burrito, be overwhelmingly stuffed, and say, oh, bless the name of Jesus, that was good. That's heartfelt. Amen. God is after our hearts, and He's not impressed with religious displays, so avoid them. Let everything you do be done from the heart. You can pray whenever you want. You can do whatever you want. Just let it be done for and unto God as worship and as praise. No matter what comes your way, be able to say amen and hallelujah. So be it and praise the Lord. He's after our hearts and it's interesting that the ones who were closest to him, the disciples, couldn't care less about washing their hands. They couldn't care less about the tradition of men. They couldn't care less about the oral law. You see, those who are closest to Jesus always walk in the most freedom from religion. They're easy to spot. It's just all about Jesus. That's what it's supposed to be. For the disciples, it was all about Jesus. It would have seemed so weird to them when the, when the Pharisees came and said, hey man, you've got to wash your hands. They're like, what are you talking about, man? I'm here with the Lord. I don't care what's on my hands. That's a wonderful attitude. Mark 3.13, it says that when Jesus called the disciples, he called them to be with him. Now, um, endangering myself of belaboring the point. Let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, along this same idea of not falling into religious routine. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah here. And he says to the leaders of the kingdom of Judah in verse 10, Isaiah 1.10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, it wasn't really Sodom and Gomorrah. God was trying to get their attention. Verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed calf cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assembly, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Now this is interesting because all of those things that God just mentioned, he had commanded them to do. Those were all things that God said to do. He said to Israel, I want you to get together and I want you to do these things. I want you to observe these times and these feasts and the Sabbaths and I want you to do these sacrifices. But you see, when the people lost the heart of it, God stopped to delight in it. When the people lost the heart of it, God ceased to delight in it. And he said, I'm not pleased with these things any longer. Even though they were being, listen very carefully, even though they were being externally obedient, Anyone else in Israel would have looked and said, good Jew, good Jew, good Jew, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Even though they were being externally obedient, everything looked great on the outside, their hearts had moved away from what God truly required of them. It says in Jeremiah chapter 7, and I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 7, 9. The Lord says this again to the kingdom of Judah. God was so upset with the kingdom of Judah at this time 
because they had forsaken a heart relationship with him. Jeremiah 7, 9, he says to them, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after others' gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? God says, Are you kidding me? Are you really going to live like heck all week long? And then come into my house on Sunday and say, praise the Lord. God says, that doesn't fly. That's not what I've called you into. You see, Israel thought that they could live however they wanted as long as they came and they made the sacrifices. God said, that will never cut it. That'll, I did not give my son Jesus Christ for that. That was not the purpose of the sacrifice. The sacrifice was to remove sin that you might know me that you might know me. He complained against the priests in the book of Jeremiah because he said the priests and those who handle the law did not know me. That word in Hebrew is yadha. It's the same word used for the intimate relationships between a husband and a wife. God calls us to know him that intimately and he's just not satisfied with anything less. That's why Jesus built his blood that we might know him intimately, not put on religious displays. And so he says to uh, them in Jeremiah 7 there, are you kidding me? Don't act like that. And then come in and say, we're delivered. Now, let me say this. Let me say this. If you do and you are acting like that during the week, do come to church. I'm not contradicting the word of God here. Do come to church. But don't come to church and say, all is good. Hey, man, I'm good. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, busy. Oh, busy. But I'm good. Everything's good. If you're living like hell during the week, you need to come to the house of God on Sunday and say, God, I am a wretched sinner. I am unworthy. I am unable. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, please empower me by your Holy Spirit to live a holy and righteous life. And then after talking to God, begin to talk to men. The Bible says in the book of James, confess your sins to one another that you might pray for one another. And so come and say, hey, dude, I'm struggling, man. I'm struggling in this area and this area and I need some help. Will you be my accountability partner? Will you help me in this? Will you pray for me this? Will you ask me some tough questions next week? So if you're sinning during the week, come, but come to do business with God. Listen, the sky is the limit when we come to church with that attitude. There is nothing God will withhold from us. God is able and willing to do exceeding abundantly. Verse 14 of of Isaiah 1. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Then it says in verse 16, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And now here's how. It doesn't happen with water. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You see, God doesn't say stay out of the house of God when you're a sinner. Come, but let's do business. Let's reason together. Though your sins have stained you, I will wash you white as snow. 
God wants to deal with our hearts. He wants to cleanse our hearts. He wants to purify our hearts. He wants to fortify into our hearts godliness. And when we sin, we need to remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If any man sins, we need to know that we have an advocate with God, the man Christ Jesus. You see, when we sin, there's someone who is on our side. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. When we sin, if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. The stuff we see and the stuff we don't see. You see, you can only repent for that which you know about, right? I'll tell you right now, there's sin you're doing in your life, you don't even know it's sin. But when we just come before God and say, God, I've got a humble heart before you. Lord, I'm just wrong in so many ways. I confess and repent of this and that and the other. He's going to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is just that good. Now, let's finish up in Mark. Go back to Mark and we'll finish out here. Remember, I've taught you that any time a preacher says we're going to finish, it means it's going longer than he expected and he's not even close to being done and he just wants to bait you. I just need to be honest with you now. We're not finishing yet. Mark chapter 7 now, verse 14. Jesus is going to illustrate further. He's going to teach him now. Mark seven fourteen, And after Jesus called the multitude to himself, he begins saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, right? It doesn't matter how dirty your hands were or what you ate. There's nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defiles the man. Verse 16, if any man has ears, let him hear. Anybody have an NIV? Oh, almost nobody. Wow. Well, NIV left out verse 16. Some of the ancient manuscripts don't have verse 16. The NIV chose not to put it in. No big deal. It just says, if any man has ears, let him hear. Verse 17, we all have, correct? Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, or I'm sorry, and when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house and his disciples were asking him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so dense in understanding this? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? It's not about the external things because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated or literally goes into the latrine. He's trying to tell the Jews, don't trip out on what you're eating and if your hands are clean or not. It goes into your stomach and it becomes a waste product. It's got nothing to do with you spiritually. Verse 20, And Jesus was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Oh, here's where it gets scary. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, the world says that man is basically good. The Bible says that man is desperately wicked. And that all that we would see as being evil in our world proceeds from the heart of man. Have you ever been shocked by what comes out of your mouth? My family and I have been moving the last couple days. Drop a couch on your foot. See what comes out. That tells you where your heart is. In the heart of man, he says here, 
are evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That is the description of my heart and your heart. Anybody want to take issue with that? That is a description of our hearts. This is in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then the Lord says in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. Oh, no. You see, the Lord doesn't look upon this. The Lord doesn't look upon what we're putting in the bag. He doesn't look upon church attendance. He doesn't look upon external things. He looks upon our hearts because from the outside, we could look wonderful and on the inside, desperately wicked and full of deceit. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on your heart. Because he looks on our heart. The invitation is the same to us today as it was to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. The only hope that we have is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and ask Him to purify our hearts, to refine us with His holy fire. When we pray that prayer, God does it. When you pray the prayer, God, forgive me of my sins, according to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, He does that. If you're here today and you don't know whether or not you're a Christian, it's very simple. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. You need to be willing to repent of your sins and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to come before God and say, God, I'm a sinner. That's a description of my heart. Jesus, I know you died to pay for that sin to cleanse my heart. I turn from my sin now and I ask you, God, to forgive me. And God will do it at that moment. And he'll begin to form in you a brand new heart. Anybody here can testify to the heart being transformed by the word of God? Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in their everlasting way. Again, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. I love when I see people who come to church early. I don't take note of it. I don't know their names. I'm not going, oh, I'm going to tell God. God's going to be so stoked about this. But I love when I see people come and they sit down in the pews and I see them just begin to prepare their hearts. And what they're doing is they're saying, God, search my heart. Try me, Lord. Search me and purify me now that I might enter in unfettered. Isn't it wonderful to sit in church with a clean conscience? That is the greatest thing in the world. I've been on both ends of the stick. I've sat in church with just the filthiest conscience, just knowing what a hypocrite I was. And I've sat in church just right with God, cleansed by God, confessed and repented. Isn't it wonderful to come before God with a clear and clean conscience? And now I want to end, honestly, in Psalm 24. Honestly, this time. Turn to Psalm 24. We're going to read it, and then the worship team's going to come up. Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is entitled, The King of Glory Entering Zion. A psalm of David. It says in verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? 
Here's who it is, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Now I want you to draw a parallel here between your own mind and your own heart and the gates and the doors. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. This should be how we approach church. God, I am opening up the whole of myself that you might come in today and be glorified through me and minister to me. Verse 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. That is why I love Sunday morning, because we can come in and we can open up the gates. We can open up the doors and we can say, Jesus, come and invade us. Come pervade us. Come envelop us. Come and submerge us in your presence today, God. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's a description of none of us and all of us. None of us because we're all sinners, but all of us because we can come before God and say, God, cleanse me now. Cleanse me now. Let nothing stand between me and you. Isaiah 59 says, The hand of the Lord is not so short that he cannot save, nor his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have caused him to hide his face from you. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, all we need to do is a little business with God. Jesus Christ said upon the cross to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished, it's done. When Jesus Christ forgives you, he forgives you of every sin, past, present, and future. Just come before him today and say, Lord, just cleanse me now today. Just cleanse me and keep me from religion. Let this thing be real. God, let me commune with you now as you called me to do. I don't want anybody this morning to feel condemned. Because the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I would love if everybody here would feel repentant. Because Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Repentant is the most wonderful word in our vocabulary. Because when we repent, God refreshes. So don't be condemned. Be repentant and be stoked. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the exhortation of your word this morning. And we know now that you look upon our hearts and you love us still. How wonderful you are. And we would ask that you would, Lord, do a work this morning in our congregational heart, in our heart as a whole, in us as a church, in us as a people, in us as a community and a coastline, that you would do work in our heart as a church. Cleanse us, search us, Lord. Purge things out of our heart that need not be there. Let us be a generation, let us be a church that truly seeks your face wholeheartedly that would shun meaningless religion and external displays and would cling to your heart, O God. And for the individuals now, as we worship you, Lord, search us, try us. And as we repent, purify us, Lord. We're here to do business now with you, to get real. In the name of Jesus, amen.